Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and Science Fiction, part of the New Books Network, and I'm Rob Wolf, your host and the author of The Alternate Universe. This is the All Roads Lead to Kanak edition. And what is Kanak? Kanak is the name of a city floating in the Arctic Circle, a city that the title of Sam J. Miller's new book, Blackfish City, refers to. And the title also refers to a big black fish, which happens to be a killer whale, which we'll get to in a moment. Sam's work has been nominated for lots of awards, including the Nebula, World Fantasy, and Crawford Awards, and his first novel, The Art of Starving, recently won the Andre Norton Award for Outstanding Young Adult Science Fiction or Fantasy Book. Hi, Sam. It's great to have you on the podcast. Hi, Rob. Thank you so much for having me on. How are things in Brooklyn tonight? I wouldn't know because I live in Manhattan, uh, in upper, upper, upper Manhattan. All right. Uh, but things are delightful. I just biked home from work and I'm full of the endorphins that New York City biking fills you with when you are constantly risking horrible death at the hands of taxi cabs. Well, I live in Manhattan, too, actually, and I know what that feels like because I have gone through phases where I bike around the city and I happen to be in a not biking phase precisely because the fear of getting sideswiped. You're probably making the right decision. I'm not sure why I thought you lived in Brooklyn, but for some reason I had that in my head. I feel like it's a safe assumption that if you know someone is a writer who lives in New York City, that it's probably Brooklyn where they live. But, um, you know, there are some outliers like us. Right. Like us. Exactly. So Connick is technically the setting for your book, but it almost feels like a character. Can you explain to our listeners how Kanak is built and give a sense of what it looks and feels like? Sure. So um, Kanak is a is a floating city in the Arctic after rising sea levels have transformed the globe and rendered a lot of the largest population centers uninhabitable or or transformed beyond recognition. And when sort of like polar ice melt has opened up the Arctic for resource exploitation. And so it's sort of like this booming frontier. Um, and there are in, in in my novel, there are many floating cities and there are many sort of um, technologies and philosophies behind them. Um, and Kanak is, is, a, is a pretty highly regulated one. Some are pretty unregulated and um, very frontiery. Um, but Kanak is, is regulated and has uh, it's an eight armed asterisk. It is, has eight arms, each a kilometer long um, that are it's home to about a million people. Uh, it has, you know, it's seated, it's situated atop a geothermal vent. So all of its energy is, is 100 percent renewable and sustainable. Um, and so it's sort of a sort of gnarly and salty um, city where people live, uh, pretty crowded, but also, um, as with most cities, a pretty wide range between very comfortable and very uncomfortable, depending on how much money they have. Well, I know you grew up in a small town, not too far from New York city, a couple hours North of New York city, Hudson, New York. Yeah. But I can tell from the way you write about 
Kanak, that you love big cities and and some of the things you just described, their diversity and their complex social structures. And your book is really filled with all the things that make urban life gritty and exciting and challenging as well. And it made me wonder what a big city offers your characters and also offers you as a setting for fiction. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, like you said, I grew up in a small town and um, s- small towns have a lot to offer fiction. There's a lot of stories you can tell there, um, but it doesn't have a lot to offer me as a place to live. Uh, and n- the city has always been the place where I knew I would find myself. Um, you know, as a, a gay person, it's often hard to find a to, to build a, a, a good life in a small town uh, and find a community of people like you. So um, the idea that uh, there's a place where people can go who are uh, different but would find a community of other folks who are like themselves w- was always a big part of why I wanted to move to New York City. And you know, the 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 fact that you have so many people from so many places and so many different experiences, um, building a, a community together and sharing um, and sometimes fighting over uh, space uh, is is super exciting to me. And and you know, there's so much food in in a in a in a big city. There's so much um, you know things that you can buy. So you know, I think that uh, for fiction, as for me in my life, there's there's just so much. Uh, so much happening and and I'm uh, I'm just like endlessly fascinated by human beings and and what they do so the ability to just watch people and and to make friends um, from all over the the social and economic and cultural and national spectrum is uh, uh, something really special and uh, easy sometimes easy to take for granted the fact that you're book includes so many diverse characters, many of whom, at least in the beginning, would seem to have no connection with one another, I have to say makes it a bit challenging for me as an interviewer to talk about because I'm thinking, well, which character should we focus on or could we focus on? I think probably the most unusual character is Masarak, who rides into town on the back of an orca, a killer whale. So I thought I would ask you if you could talk a little bit about her. You know, who is she and where'd she come from and and what's her connection to this whale? So uh, this character showed up on the doorstep of my brain, fully formed and very angry uh, one day and, and really demanded that I uh, put her in a story. Uh, and at the time she was a teenager and I didn't really know a lot about who she was or what her mission was, um, just that she was emotionally and, and technologically bonded to an orca. Um, and, you know, I had been doing a lot of sort of reading about nanotechnologies and the abilities of uh, the, the potential for using nanites to establish sort of essentially a wireless network between uh, different machines or organisms. Um, and so I wanted to sort of extrapolate on that and, and imagine a scenario in the future where there might be people who um, have this sort of technological enhancement, possibly not because they wanted it, but because uh, something happened to them um, and who had sort of built a, a different culture around it. And so, um, you know, she's arrived in, in town. She didn't stay a teenager long, um, but she did arrive in a in a city that 
was kind of a hotbed of um, excitement, but also horror and atrocity and uh, beautiful things and terrible things. And on a mission that would slowly draw together a bunch of people um, from all over the, the the spectrum of 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 what makes up the city. So I had her, and then the rest of the story sort of fell in in line with around figuring out who she was um, and what she wanted. And is that how characters? develop for you? Do you walk around with characters for a while in your head before they show up on paper? Yeah, it's it's always different. It's always surprising. There's always n- new uh, unanticipated ways that this happens. Usually there will be uh, an idea or two or 7,000 bouncing around in my head and, um, you know, like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if there was a character who was connected to, a, to, an, to an animal? Uh, and wouldn't it be cool if there was a character who had uh, an orca as a companion. Um, and so, you know, the ideas that might not mean much on their own will start to spark off of each other and create a narrative, um, or at least create a character, uh, around it. So the, the, the process is, is always different, but with most of my stuff, it's really about, um, you know, pieces that are coming together in ways that I didn't anticipate, or, you know, there will be a speculative conceit, like a superpower or a, a futuristic, setting um that i had been that will have been as it were floating um in the arctic circle of my brain um uh, not doing much on their own that will suddenly uh, i'll suddenly realize is the perfect place for some other piece um of 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 story that that i had been uh, munching on for a while among the many characters and points of view each character each chapter is written from the point of view of one of the many characters in Blackfish City. Is there one that you most relate to or are aspects of you perhaps in in all the characters or perhaps in none of them? Yeah, there's definitely aspects of me in all the characters as there are in all of my characters, even the completely reprehensible ones, perhaps especially the completely reprehensible ones. Um, But I think that uh, the character of Phil um, has a lot of resonance for me. Um, and you know, again, this is gonna, this is cause probably because he's reprehensible. Um, but also because he's somebody who comes from a certain degree of relative privilege, um, and who is a gay man whose identity is really bound up in sex and, and the, the sort of pursuit of it and, um, the, the sort of liberated, um, uh, having of it, who sort of comes, becomes aware of some, some of the complexities of his city and, that he wasn't aware of. And, you know, I'm just a really big sucker for the narrative arc of a character who's sort of goes from a place of benefiting from or participating in a system of oppression to sort of undermining it or, or realizing that they're the one to destroy it. Um, that's, uh, you know, my favorite narrative ever is uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, and the character of Prince Zuko is probably my favorite uh, character from anything. Um, so, you know, this this idea of a, a prince who uh, realizes that he's actually the heir to a genocidal imperialist nation, and um, his responsibility isn't to uphold that, but to, to end that. Phil is one of several characters who suffer from an illness called the breaks. And I know you've uh, spoken about uh, parallels between HIV and the breaks, but there's also something, and without 
really ruining the, the plot in any way, but in the end, the breaks turn out to have an aspect to them that might be construed as positive, that it isn't necessarily uh, something negative, or at least it didn't seem that way to me. And I wonder if you could talk about the breaks and this idea of an illness that is actually something that could be seen in some ways as enriching the people who suffer from it, if they understand it, of course, because it is something that people are terrified of, and it does seem to be ruining lives. But but in the end, I think there's a different message that emerges. I could be wrong, so I'd be interested to hear you talk about it. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is this is where this is where fiction is is useful, and fiction is fun because you can, you know, you, we have metaphors and we can explore things that are enriching or expanding upon certain aspects of reality. A sort of like fundamental belief of mine, um, my work as a community organizer and my life as a writer and as a human um, is that the uh, oppression that you face and the challenges that you go through um, also make you strong and also make you powerful um, and that you, you shouldn't have to <laughs> you shouldn't be oppressed. Um, uh, but the oppression that you've that you've survived has given you the the power um, to fight to change those things. Um, and so s- certainly um, as a disease that impacts predominantly um, poor people and uh, immigrants and uh, LGBTQ folks, uh, the breaks is a sort of uh, good stand-in for um, systemic oppression, and that it's you know it's it's killing people, but it's also giving them the opportunity to to come together and to to find that they have a, they have power that maybe they weren't aware of before. You know, that's why, that's why we love metaphors, right? It's because, um, there are a lot of connections to, uh, HIV AIDS, um, and the sort of like societal response to it. But of course, I, you know, it's, one wouldn't want to imply that an actual disease is, is a source of power. Uh, but, the fiction fiction lets us lets us explore that you know things like the fact that the response to HIV AIDS and the way that people fought back and the way that people raised hell about government inaction and and really sort of like transformed the societal conversation around queerness and um, uh, LGBTQ identity. So you know I think that that's that's definitely something that I wanted to explore with the breaks. And maybe you could just say a little bit about what it is, because it is a very unusual illness. Its symptoms are manifest more mentally than they are physically. Yeah, it's essentially a fatal illness with no physical uh, symptoms, um, and it's it's a it's a psychological um, affliction where the sufferer is um, experiencing. Th- things and memories that are not their own. Um, and you know, not, it's not really a spoiler cause you figure it out pretty early on that you're actually, um, getting, you've, you've received aspects of the identity and the memories of pr- the person who in- infected you and the person who infected them and the whole long chain of infection. Um, and ultimately it causes your identity and, and your brain to essentially, uh, break, um, and, you know, leave you unable to care for yourself, um, or even your body able to function. Um, so it's, uh, you know, uh, it's a purely, it's, it's a psychological fatal illness.
So we've already discussed your love of or your fascination with big cities, and I think Blackfish City conveys the love of a lot of other things, like you know, cool wild animals like the orca, and there's a polar bear, and there's a little monkey, <laughs> and it also conveys, I think, a love of family because family ends up being something that's really important to your characters. I wondered how that became a central theme of the book for you. Yeah, I mean, so a lot of it came from this. I, I knew that this was a book about love and that um, the Orchomancer, um, that her mission, even though it will involve a lot of bloodshed and a lot of killing of evildoers, was ultimately about love and and someone that she someone that she loved, um, and so once I had that grounding and once I knew what that was all about, the rest of the story really fell in line around that and 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 really wanting to tell a story that was about the ways that we are saved by our family, um, the ways that we're sometimes held back or 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 harmed by our family, but 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 just the love that we have and the ways that we might. The things that we get from them, the, the ways that our family has made us strong or powerful or or whatever. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of it kind of fell in line around that, and and that sort of speaks to my sort of bigger picture desire with this book to paint a a, a hopeful dystopia or an idea of a future where yes, maybe many of the things we love will be destroyed, um, maybe there will be unspeakable horror uh, in our future as a result of, of climate change or social uh, injustice. But that doesn't mean humanity is going to cease, right? This idea that the electricity goes out and we all instantly revert to cannibalism um, is a super problematic narrative that I really hate in things like The Road or The Walking Dead. Um, and so wanting to imagine a dramatically transformed world that is still recognizably human um, and where things like love and family and community and noodles can save us. Yeah, there are a lot of noodles or a lot of street vendors selling all kinds of spicy noodles in Blackfish City, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, I, street vendors are, to me, sort of the essence of a city. And, the, you know, if, if you look at cities and sort of the history of cities and the ways that street vendors are either regulated or harassed or, you know, how they've gone from being this sort of like a crucial piece of the of this of the city puzzle, um, the ways historically they there were crackdowns on them, uh, attempts to frame them as uh, unwholesome or destructive. Um, and and so, you know, there's with modernity and with the sort of like evolution of a very controlled city, there were attempts to like regulate and harass and police uh, vendors, um, which is not universally true. It's true in many Western cities. Um, it's certainly true in New York, um, but uh, it's not true everywhere. Uh, so I wanted to imagine a city where many of the sort of problematic things that have been the prime the prime directives of urban policy over the past 30 years in cities like New York were no longer true, right? Like maybe you don't need a racist police force in order to have a functional city. Maybe you don't need to make homeless people's lives miserable as your sort of prime mandate for how architecture and public space and access to bathrooms and other things uh, uh, happen. I just wanted to go back to something you said previously, uh, mentioning The Walking Dead and The Road, it got me thinking that even though 
things are pretty horrible there. One thing that does rise to the surface are, in fact, human connections. I mean, in the road, the father's trying to protect his child, and that's his main motivation. Also, in The Walking Dead, what motivates people are their, are their connections. So I just thought, I mean, it's interesting, even in those very bleak settings, that's maybe one of the few hopeful things that the creators of those stories put forward. Yeah, that's true. But that, I mean, you know, in, in those two cases, and, and certainly not universally, but often that's sort of depicted as like, okay, well, I've still got my humanity and I love the people that I love, but everybody else is a monster cannibal um, or a zombie or a power mad militia warlord. And so, you know, this idea that like society will cease to function um, and people will revert to savagery is is what I was trying to uh, challenge, you know, because often in the, my, you know, my problem with narratives like that is it's is it's often just like, Let's let's do our best to survive another day to postpone by 24 hours the moment where we die horribly. Um, and, you know, that doesn't make to me for interesting narrative or 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 life. Well, you have made an effort, I think, for all your characters, even Phil. They all have things that they enjoy and, and value and they do all, in fact, I think, have good traits. Yeah. And just generally, I feel like that's that's always been sort of one of my prime um, goals as a writer um, is to understand people who I find incomprehensible um, and to look at people who behave in in ways that are destructive or terrible um, because, you know, real people do that and they all are, it's like from the talented Mr. Ripley, there's the line, nobody thinks they're a bad person. Whatever you do, it makes sense to you. Um, so this idea that like, you know, people who do terrible things, they always have a really good reason for it. Um, and they never think I'm a terrible person. So, you know, trying to trying to get inside the heads of people who behave in, in ways that I find reprehensible, um, because, you know, the, there is a person there. It might be a really damaged person. It might be a really miserable person. It might be a person who's in a really terrible place, but it's, it's a person. And we've talked a little bit about family. And the fact is that when Maserat comes to Kanak, if I said both those names correctly. Yeah, you did. She ends up being the bond that brings these disparate characters in your book together. And so talking a little bit more about the theme of family, I wonder if you think some people might find it ironic. I'm not one of those people, but or at least unusual that a gay man like yourself is is celebrating the loving bonds that, that hold families together, especially when, in the not-too-distant past, LGBTQ folks were more often experienced rejection by their families than a loving embrace. And so maybe it's not the first theme that some people might associate with a gay author. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I wouldn't say in the past. I think that's still a reality for many, many, many people um, is that they they are rejected by their families or they can't be the person that they really are around their families or that they, you know, deal with a number of, of issues of, of, of that. And I think that family is 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 something that we all define for ourselves. And, and certainly with with queer folks, um, we have always built our own families when our when our blood families were unsatisfying or destructive or harmful or, or rejected us or wouldn't would only accept us on terms that were unacceptable to us. Um, and so, you know, even though the, the family that is ultimately constructed in Blackfish City is a 
blood family. It's also about people who come from really different places, building a family for themselves and, and choosing to be a family as opposed to being, you know, the family that they that they sort of um, were handed at birth. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, family is just another word for community and community is super important to me and to, to tons of folks, especially folks who've been marginalized or had to deal with oppression from the, the from society at large. Um, so that is something that I want to I want to celebrate and lift up in in my fiction, um, because it is pretty, pretty important to, to what makes us awesome and what makes what makes cities amazing and uh, um, and the bonds that we build with people. Well, as you said, you've worked for many years as a community organizer and for an organization that advocates on behalf of the homeless. And I came upon a recent article you wrote about warehousing apartments. And <laughs> and everything became clear. <laughs> well, not exactly, except what came to mind was that there's something similar to warehousing going on in Kanak. And that made me wonder how your work as a community organizer and advocate for the homeless gives you ideas and inspires your fiction. And maybe we should also, or maybe you can explain just what warehousing apartments is as well, since I mentioned it. Sure. Uh, so, you know, my day job is as a community organizer with a group called Picture the Homeless, which was founded and is led by homeless folks. And we work on bringing homeless people together to fight for changes in city policy um, that impact homeless folks. And, you know, when I started in 2004 as the housing organizer at Picture the Homeless and was talking to homeless folks about what do you want to do? What do you want to change? What are the policies that are preventing you from getting housing? Um, we did a lot of research and looked at a lot of things and, and people had a lot of knowledge about about, uh, different aspects of city policy that 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 are problems. Um, but the thing people were the most mad about was that landlords were keeping buildings empty and were keeping vacant lots um, undeveloped. And they were getting tickets for sleeping on the sidewalk. Um, but that landlord was perfectly within his or her legal right to keep their property empty. And that the, the city um, criminalized one behavior and supported and facilitated another. Um, so the injustice of warehousing, of, of landlords keeping properties off the market, was the thing that our, our members were most outraged about. And that really led to us wanting to um, look into that and look at how we could change that and 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 see what we could learn about the problem because it is um it's a very invisible problem people aren't really aware of it um that you know folks don't always look up and notice how many buildings are boarded up um and so the more we learned about it and, and the sort of way that it happens it became really apparent that you know landlords were keeping buildings empty because it's supply and demand and if you keep the supply low the demand will be high and you can make more money um, and that if there are people who are living on the streets or in shelters as a result of that, then that's just fine as far as real estate is concerned, because that's the boogeyman that frightens everybody else into paying really high rents because you don't want to end up like that guy. Um, so, you know, that's something that we've spent 14 years trying to force the city to, you know, fix um, and often at great, great 
uh, in the face of great opposition or just ignorance or, or denial that this it's even a thing that happens. Um, so yeah, there's a certain chunk of Blackfish City that is me trying to complain about a problem that people don't realize is a problem in real life and see if I can get them to believe in it in a science fiction future um, because it's you know, it's it's a thing that happens and it's it's a piece of how gentrification happens and how, you know, landlords keep buildings empty while they wait for neighborhoods to change so they can make more money. Well, one thing that reminds me of New York in Blackfish City is the presence of very rich people in New York City, but in some sense, their invisibility as well. I mean, as the rest of us are biking or riding the subway, you know, they're in the ether somewhere, you know, they're taking their private cars and they live in beautiful apartments. So that felt very familiar because you have the shareholders in Blackfish City who are invisible as well. No one really knows who they are. Yeah, I mean, they're invisible, but they're every like people, you know, they go to the they go to the store, they they go to the the um, to look at the sea lions. I mean, I think that's how it is in New York, too. They might be, you know, we don't know who, um, you know, people aren't wearing signs that say, like, I'm an evil gentrifier, right? People are participating in and are part of um, the transformation of the city in different ways that we don't always we can't always see. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's, that's just part of how cities function that, that you have great wealth alongside great poverty and people are rubbing elbows in some ways, very positively, right? Like one of my friends, um, who's a member of the board of directors of picture, the homeless, um, he panhandles in front of grand central terminal. Um, and he's been doing it for 30 years and everybody knows him and he has a lot of friends and many of them are very wealthy and, you know, give him money, um, and treat him with a lot of respect and love. And he does, he treats them likewise. So, um, it's not necessarily always an antagonistic thing. It's just, it's the nature of the city that, um, you know, some people have great wealth and some people don't, and that we're, sort of um, exploiting each other and 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 profiting from each other's um, suffering in different ways. I understand Blackfish City started as a short story. Is is that right? It's not that it started as a short story. It's that I wrote a short story called Calved, which was published in Asimov's and set in a floating city in the Arctic called Kanak um, because I was trying, I was sort of like responding to a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment in the United States and, and reflecting on the irony that most of the time, for example, if we're talking about Mexico and immigrants who come here from Mexico, um, folks are leaving Mexico because of U.S. policies and things like NAFTA um, uh, that have sort of decimated the ability of Mexican companies uh, and the Mexican government to provide employment and, and care for its citizens. Um, so people are fleeing hellish conditions that we helped make, and then they come here and get treated like shit again. Um, so you know, sort of imagining a future where that'll be us, right? And where we have, you know, created the hellish landscape that uh, uh, may may be in our future if um, some climate change predictions uh, come true. Um, and that, that, you know, we would then have to flee to a city or a place where we would be the object of the hate and scorn that we once inflicted on others. Um, so that was that story. Um, and then once the Orcamancer showed up in my head and I was imagining her on this mission, arriving in this strange place. Uh, it just felt right that it would be this, this city that I had already figured out in my head, how it worked and, and what, uh, what are its sort of like very basic rules. 
Um, and, you know, all of my work takes place in a shared universe. So there's a lot of um, pieces of other stories of mine in Blackfish City and, and vice versa. Um, so there's always a little bit of me. Uh, I don't want to say being lazy and just substituting something I already did, um, but definitely uh, connecting to a sort of central world and narrative. And how do you balance your day job as a community organizer and your writing? They definitely reinforce and feed and facilitate each other. It is very, I love my job. I find it really rewarding. I, I love the people that I work with. Homeless folks in New York City and everywhere um, are dealing with really horrific stuff, but, you know, are also human and are also amazing and have wisdom and power and strength and humor that I certainly don't have. And I wouldn't be able to respond to that situation um, uh, with the, the same way they have. Um, and so, that is endlessly rewarding for me and reinvigorating to see that, you know, the sort of boundless power and beauty of, of the human spirit. And also there's a, you know, the fact that people are dealing with all this terrible stuff, but that they're not helpless and that they do have a way to fight back and that we provide this kind of like safe, nonviolent, peaceful, political opportunity to fight to change policies, you know, when you're being kicked awake by the cops at 2 a.m. and told to get out of here, even though you're not breaking any laws, you know, there's no real positive way to fight back, right? Um, but, you know, going to meetings with other homeless folks and, you know, pressuring the city and meeting with legislators and police chiefs and uh, others uh, to put to put pressure on them to change things is uh, really special and, and, and rewarding for me, um, to be able to, to facilitate that. So, you know, I, I definitely get a lot out of my, uh, job and it's a helpful thing to be able to step away from the desk once in a while. I think that if I wasn't doing it, uh, my work would really suffer because I wouldn't, you know, I would sort of be in my own head too much and I wouldn't be sort of challenged to step away from the paper and see the world. And what are you working on now? Writing wise. Well, uh, we just finalized my second young adult novel, which is called Destroy All Monsters, and it will be published by Harper Teen in June of 2019. Um, and I'm taking a little break from novels to write a couple short stories, which I really love short stories. And I've been in novel land for, yeah, about three years now. Um, so it's a nice place, but I don't want to stay there all the time. Um, so I'm writing some short stories before I jump into my second novel for regular adults, which um, I'm probably going to get dive into in the fall. And the process of writing a novel versus a short story, how would you describe that to someone who didn't understand how, how really different they are? Because I know that they are in some ways, for most writers anyway, a very different process. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a problematic analogy to be made here um, about the difference between a long, sustained, mutually loving and supportive long-term relationship and a really hot one-night stand. 
um, and how there's room for both of those things in the world. Um, and so I think that's the best analogy I can come up with for the difference between novels and short stories. Um, one, you know, they engage, they engage you differently. They allow you to explore different things. It's a different emotional experience for the reader. Um, and often short stories are places to play with things that you are not, you don't want to dedicate a ton of energy and time to, but that you want to play with in a, in a sort of more fun and lighthearted or serious, but not super deep kind of way. Well, you make short stories sound like a lot more fun and the novels kind of, I see a couple sitting, staring at each other, looking kind of bored over a plate of spaghetti after many years of marriage. That's not my that's not my intention because I, I love novels and uh, I love short stories. But, um, you know, it's just a, it's a deeper thing. Right. I mean, that's the thing about about marriage that's beautiful is that, you know, by getting to know somebody, by by getting to sort of build that kind of um, emotional bond with somebody, um, you can there's there's riches there that you're not going to get from, uh, you know, a, a quickie uh, with a stranger. Right. Okay. So maybe it's a delicious gourmet meal that they made together that they're one of their favorite meals and they're enjoying wine and beautiful music too. So you just changed the picture. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. I've been talking with Sam J. Miller about Blackfish City, which came out from Echo HarperCollins in April. For more interviews, please subscribe to the New Books and Science Fiction podcast on your favorite podcasting app or visit newbooksnetwork.com and click on the Science Fiction Show link. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. And consider leaving a review or giving us lots of stars if you like the show. I'm Rob Wolf, and I'm gratified you stuck around to the end of this episode. Thanks very much.